This is what keeps three million residents here three to four times a day, a signal that the Russian bombs are coming and that it's time to seek shelter fast. I'm Kim Helmgard, and today marks one year since Russia launched its unprovoked invasion into Ukraine, a year of unspeakable loss for the families of the 8,000-plus civilians who've been killed, a year of incredible sacrifices and daily struggles, days, even weeks without electricity or heat, a year of waking up every day and trying to live as normal a life as possible in the middle of a war. Anya Kachagura is a stand-up comedian in Kyiv. For the past year, she's been entertaining Ukrainians at clubs all over the country. Since the Russian invasion, she's had to incorporate the war into her act. People say, like, your life is divided into before and after, but it's, it is kind of okay, so how what, it works. Okay, so what was a before you joke, like, from, you know, 18 uh, months ago? Or I was or not so political. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, I was not joking about Scholz or Macron. Or, uh, right. I didn't know about RPGs and all this stuff. Okay. Uh, I was joking uh, more about adulting. Women experiences a lot of my second, the jokes were about about um, something about mental health because I have clinical depression, so that's a huge topic to joke about. Also, there might be something like on the news, uh, for example, when the European Union said they're going to send us light bulbs, which is very kind, (laughs) it is a comedic goal. Uh, what it's like did, farce, really. Yeah, yeah. What did they expect sending light bulbs if yeah. we don't have electricity? Anya says that comedy is more important than ever for Ukrainians. I think it has more importance as a coping mechanism, as an outlet and some cathartic, there is a cathartic function in there because we deal with so much stress and tragedy and loss every day. So it's just something we have to do to stay sane. Sometimes you just need to uh, make a silly joke to keep going. And I think uh, a lot of people uh, find it as an outlet to come and talk and share experiences. It helps to understand that we're all in this together. It helps with this feeling of isolation. You feel like a part of community, I guess. And also it's, uh, it's, um, it gives people hope, energy. I don't know, we did a show in Odessa, we did two shows there, and after the show, uh, lady came to me and she said that it was the first time she really laughed in this year and I still think about it and I'm probably gonna think about it for ages because it was such a huge moment for her and for me. Eugenia Emerald is 32 years old. She used to make jewelry. Now, she's a sniper, a pregnant sniper. The baby is due in April. At one point, I was in Zaporizhia region. I served there and lived in a basement at some abandoned base, some sort of bunker built in the 1950s. I felt like I would die in that bunker. That's how lonely I was. 
But one day, the media began to call. I had a great internet connection thanks to the Starlink, so I could do interviews. The magazine Elle published an article about me, and my future husband read it. Then he found me on Instagram, and he wrote that he was proud that we had such women, and he thanked me for my service. He also told me that he was military, and that's how we started to talk. We started chatting a lot online. It was hard to meet up, though, because I was on the front line. He was on rotation in Kyiv. He said if I could take some vacation, he would invite me on a date, but it was hard to get out. Right around then, commanders started giving soldiers some short leave, but there were a lot of soldiers in line. Eventually, I went to my commander and explained the situation. I told him I had fallen in love, that I needed a short break from being around 400 military guys and a little time to recharge. About a month later, Emerald Suter showed up at her base and proposed. She said yes. When she found out she was pregnant, Emerald was on the front line, with artillery shells and all sorts of other weapons falling around her. Ludmila Tabolina is a 44-year-old elementary school principal. She worries that to the children at her school, war has become normalized, just the way things are. Uh, children understand many, many things. They grow up very quickly. The war has become part of their education. They incorporate it into their play and word games. They comfort each other if someone is feeling scared or sad. Sometimes they can start crying because they don't know if their parents are safe. It's been an unbelievable, unforgettable year. It's been more like a non-year. When the air raids are sounding and the youngest kids we have are coming down to the shelter in their pajamas and they are sleepy and their hair is all messed up. You know, they almost never cry. That was the sound of an American-made M777 howitzer, a powerful, towable, and easily hidden long-range artillery weapon. We were on a ridge a few miles outside of Bakhmut in eastern Donbass part of the 600-mile front line where the war is being fought. Ukrainian troops have nicknamed this howitzer Sofika. Made of steel and titanium, its hydraulic hoses and pumps enable its gun turret to easily slide in and out. Ukrainian military officers say weapons like this one are making a difference. During the past year, the U.S. has pledged about $113 billion in assistance to Kyiv, more than half of it in the form of military aid, according to the U.S. Department of Defense. In addition to the howitzers, there are other infantry arms and equipment, air defense systems, missiles, helicopters, drones, armored vehicles, radar and communications antennas, satellite imagery, trucks, trailers, coastal patrol boats, the list goes on. The first batch of U.S. Abrams tanks destined for Ukraine is expected to arrive as early as this year. 
American-made F-16 fighter jets have been on Ukraine's wish list since the beginning. In a show of support to Ukraine, President Joe Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine on Monday, February 20th. He spoke with President Volodymyr Zelensky ahead of the anniversary. Freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. We'll do it. On the other hand, support among the American public for providing Ukraine with weaponry or other direct economic assistance is softening. Meanwhile, the war rages on and neither side appears ready to give in. Military analysts at the Institute for the Study of War, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank, believe that after 12 months of fighting, Russian military manpower and equipment reserves are significantly depleted. It is unclear whether Moscow has enough power to launch a sustained and meaningful new major offensive in the days, weeks, and months ahead. One that would, for example, enable Russia to capture and hold new territory, as Ukraine did when it reclaimed settlements in Kherson and Kharkiv this past fall. President Zelensky has said that a predicted Russian spring offensive has likely already begun, and he continues to rule out any peace deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin that would sacrifice Ukrainian territory. Following President Biden's visit on Monday, he addressed his countrymen. We have to do everything to put an end to Russian aggression this year to liberate our still-occupied territories, and to guarantee reliable security for our country and for all the peoples of Europe who want to live in freedom and peace. Since the war's start, Ukraine's civilian population has endured innumerable forms of tragedy. Millions have fled abroad or been internally displaced. Russian missile strikes have damaged or destroyed Ukraine's railways, apartment buildings, hospitals, schools. In every corner of the country, Ukrainian engineers are engaged in a Sisyphean battle to repair missile-hit energy infrastructure. More than 50,000 war crimes allegations have been reported to Ukraine's chief prosecutor's office, from brutal rapes to inexplicable murders. But it is in Bakhmut and other places on the front line that Ukraine's military has seen some of the war's fiercest and most intense battles and American weapons have been integral to the fight. To learn more about the war's outlook from a military perspective, I spoke with former U.S. General Wesley Clark. General Clark served 38 years in the Army, and in his final assignment as Supreme Allied Commander Europe, led NATO forces to victory in the Kosovo War. For weeks, we've been hearing about this big Russian offensive that's going to happen, but it seems to not have really taken hold. Can you tell me what happened with that? Well, without uh, access to classified U.S. intelligence information, it's really hard to understand what's happened. But I think you can be sure that the Ukrainians, through their own methods, did everything they could to forestall the offensive. So, um, you know, there have been HIMAR attacks. There's rumors of explosions. Um, Sometimes there are train derailments that occur. There's also communications issues. There's a lot of things that could have forestalled this offensive. But we do know that Putin did mobilize a lot of people. It looks like it started in a piecemeal fashion with just feeding soldiers into what we would call a meat grinder. As the Ukrainians held on in Bakhmut and Solodar, they gave up Solodar a little bit. 
uh, but they're behind it and they've not been broken through. And uh, thus far, the Russian offensive hasn't mustered sufficient combat power at the point of a penetration to break through the Ukrainian defenses. But it does look like the offensive is underway as best the Russians can do it. It's hard to say who has the upper hand right now. It's going to depend on relative logistics and relative loss rates. The outcome is very much in the balance right now. You know in your op-ed that Crimea is quite integral to Ukraine's victory. Why? So in order to bring the war to a successful negotiated conclusion and concluded on terms favorable to the West and our interests in this, it's going to be necessary, I believe, to threaten, at least threaten Crimea. Certainly, this is what the Ukrainians intend to do. They intend to take it all back. The United States and Western allies, although they endorse the territorial integrity of Ukraine as a legal matter, have not, in fact, provided what appears to me to be necessary and sufficient means for Ukraine actually to regain control of Crimea militarily. The aim of the policymakers in Washington and NATO seems to be to exhaust the Russian offensive, bleed it out against the Ukrainian defenses, give the Ukrainians a chance to attack south, and if they don't make it, blow the whistle, call stalemate, bring everybody to the negotiating table, and try to hammer out a diplomatic agreement. It's a logical course of action, uh, but uh, given Mr. Putin, uh, it's hard to imagine that he's going to surrender any of the territories given up unless that territory would be capable of being seized by force by Ukraine if he doesn't surrender it diplomatically. So I think what would more likely happen is the negotiations would be underway there would be a halt in hostilities temporarily. Russia would rebuild its forces. The West would lose interest over a period of weeks and months in strengthening Ukraine. And Putin would look for an opportunity to uh, reignite the war. It might be three months, six months, a year. Don't know. What role has morale played in this war for the Ukrainian military? Ukraine has a highly motivated army, essentially citizen soldiers built a, around a core of professionals. There's some 700,000 people now in the Ukrainian army, some 2 million signed up waiting to get in if they have the equipment. Um, this is a citizen's force that's fighting to defend its homeland, its language, its culture, its families. And on the other side is a conscript force that's not even kept informed of really what the objectives are. When they began, they didn't understand they were even going into Ukraine. Uh, and now uh, the leading edge of that force is often people who have been freed from prison and forced to attack at gunpoint without adequate training or support. So, yeah, there's no comparison in terms of the individual fighting qualities of the soldier. But at a certain level of quantity, you can overcome the qualitative differences. The question is whether Russia has that quantity to overcome the qualitative superiority of the Ukrainian spirit and fighting skills. Is Russia out of military options? I think that's the prevailing consensus. This accounts for the sort of mood of, of optimism. But you've got some variables in there that are unknown. You've got North Korean support. 
you've got the potential for Chinese intervention. Now, the Chinese are not going to jump in on a losing side. On the other hand, President Zelensky is, uh, you know, appealing urgently for more mission. And I get calls from friends in Ukraine who are saying, we're out of ammunition. We got to have more artillery tubes right away. So it may look different from the intelligence side, but from the perspective of the men fighting at the front, uh, they're in life or death struggle. General, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. This has been a special episode of Five Things. I'm Kim Helmgard. Thanks for listening.